2: That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to
3: 500-500. This is the Al Sabine Hospital in the Yemeni city of Sana. Ibtasam is two and a half. She weighs 15 pounds. Haifa is seven. She weighs 11 pounds. Before this report ends, another child will die in Yemen, one every 10 minutes, according to the
4: UN. It's just desperation and death. It is bad as it gets. I don't know if I've ever seen a movie this bad. In
5: 1977, NASA launched what may be the greatest exploration of all time. We have ignition and we have liftoff. Today, Voyager 1 is 13 billion miles from Earth, moving beyond the planets of our solar system at 38,000 miles an hour. It's still sending back signals and science. But did you know this incredible feat has a soundtrack? Golden records are mounted on board in case there's someone or something out there that wants to know what's happening back here.
0: They were
6: a team of no-names and underdogs that made an unlikely climb to the pinnacle of soccer-mad South America. Five days after the celebrations, nearly a year ago, they boarded a flight for their biggest match of all. When did you first sense something was, was very wrong?
0: I remember the alarm going off, and a voice came on in English to signal an emergency. I remember many people saying, Jesus help, my God, Jesus have mercy. Then
6: their chartered plane crashed into a mountainside, killing all but three members of the team. I'm Steve Croft. I'm Leslie
3: Stahl. I'm Bill Whitaker. I'm Anderson Cooper. I'm John Wertheim. I'm Scott Pelley. Those stories tonight on 60 Minutes. This portion of 60 Minutes is sponsored by Aleve. All day strong, all day long. This month, Saudi Arabia tightened a stranglehold on the neighboring country of Yemen, and seven million people face starvation. The Saudi blockade is an escalation in Yemen's civil war. The United Nations says that the war has now become a man-made catastrophe. You've seen very little of this because the Saudis prevent reporters from reaching the war zone. Recently, we were ordered off a ship headed to Yemen, Days later, the Saudis gave us permission to fly there, but after our equipment was loaded and our boarding passes issued, the Saudis closed the airspace so the plane couldn't take off. Even so, we have managed to get pictures out of Yemen to show you what the Saudi government does not want you to see. This will be hard to watch, but 27 million people in Yemen pray you will not turn away. Hungry children cry, but there are no tears at the limits of starvation. Wasting bodies cannot afford them. This is the Al Sabine Hospital in the Yemeni city of Sanaa. Ibtissam is two and a half. She weighs 15 pounds. Haifa is seven. She weighs 11 pounds. The images and the stories from the hospital were sent to us by people that we hired inside Yemen. Before this report ends, another child will die, one
4: every 10 minutes, according to the UN. It's just desperation and death. It is bad as it gets. I don't know if I've ever seen a movie this bad. David Beasley runs the World Food Program the
3: UN's emergency first responder to prevent famine. We were headed into Yemen with the World Food Program. The Saudis gave us permission to come, and then when we arrived, they wouldn't let us into the country.
4: What do you think they didn't want us to see? I don't understand why. They won't allow the world to see what's taking place, because I think if the world sees the tragedy of this human suffering, Number one, the world will step up and provide the support financially for innocent children to eat. But when you get on the ground and see what I see, you see is chaos, is starvation, is hunger, and is unnecessary conflict, strictly man made. All parties involved in this conflict have their hands guilty. Their hands are dirty. All parties.
3: In essence, the fight is between the two main branches of Islam. The Shia branch occupies much of the West, the Sunnis most of the South and East. Saudi Arabia, leader of the Sunni world, began airstrikes against Shia rebels more than two years ago. The rebels, who are known as Houthis, are supported by Saudi Arabia's archenemy, Iran, the leader of the Shia world. Houthi rebels have plenty of blood on their hands, including the deaths of 1,000 civilians. But the United Nations says the Saudi coalition has killed more than 3,000 civilians. Bombing schools, hospitals, and this, al Kubra Hall, scene of a funeral last year. 132 civilians were killed, nearly 700 wounded. Still, the deadliest weapon in Yemen is a blockade, holding up food, fuel, and medical aid.
4: We can't get our ships in, they get blocked. Who blocks the ports? Uh, The Saudi coalition.
3: David Beasley told us the Saudis bombed the cranes that unload ships. The U.S. sent replacement cranes but the Saudis won't let
4: them in. We ask any, any parties engaged in this conflict to respect humanitarian law, respect the rights of innocent people, and give us the access that we need to provide the help that's needed.
3: It sounds like the Saudis are using starvation
4: as a weapon. I don't think there's any question. uh, The Saudi-led coalition, along with the Houthis and all of those involved are using food as a weapon uh, of war. And it's disgraceful.
3: The UN World Food Program is the largest humanitarian aid agency. The U.S. is its biggest donor, so the director is most often an American. Beasley was once governor of South Carolina.
4: We're on the brink of famine. If we don't receive the monies that we need in the next few months, I would say 125,000 little girls and boys will die. We've been able to avert famine but we know three things are happening. We know that people are dying. We know that people are wasting. And we know that children are stunting. We have a stunting rate in Yemen now at almost 50%. That means they're smaller, the brains are smaller, the body's smaller because they're not getting the food nor the nutrition they need.
6: We're here in Djibouti. And World Food
3: Program's Steven Anderson is trying to move millions of pounds of food to Yemen from this African port.
6: The World Food Programme is mobilizing uh, food for 7 million people. Now, what that looks like is a 110-pound bag of wheat flour. We're aiming to provide 2 million of those every month to the people of Yemen. How long can you keep that up? Well, we're desperately praying for peace, because that's the, the only sustainable way of really rebuilding the situation. Our stated objective is to try to prevent a famine from occurring.
3: While facing imminent famine, the people of Yemen are also suffering one of the biggest cholera epidemics in history. Nearly a million have been infected with the bacteria which inflicts diarrhea, dehydration, and sometimes death. The disease thrives in dirty water, and water treatment and sanitation have collapsed in Yemen cities. What do you have to have to stop the epidemic? Nevio Zagaria heads the World Health Organization's emergency response. We should have peace. This is what we need to stop this epidemic. So we cannot solve the problem of cholera if we do not have a proper safe water supply, if we not have proper sanitation, if we not have the sewage treatment
4: plant in the main town functioning and not stop because run out of fuel as it happened at the beginning of this epidemic in the north of of
3: Sanaa for three, four months. The main sewage plant in Sanaa. Yes. Ran out of fuel and didn't run for three or four months? Yes. So three million people. About two million Yemenis have been forced from their homes by the war, and there's been a big exodus of refugees that the world doesn't know very much about. Many of them have come 25 miles across the Red Sea to this place. It's a refugee camp in the African nation of Djibouti. It is a testament to how bad things are in Yemen that the refugees believe that this place is so much better. We've seen a few refugee camps in our time, but this may be the most desolate, with a drought of life and a flood of sun. One worker told us we were smart to come in the fall when it cooled off to 110. How long have you been here? Unfortunately, 28 months. Ali Shafik was once an architect in the Yemeni capital. His home was destroyed. He's alone here, and his despair was almost like madness.
0: To be uh, jobless in, the, in, the, in, the, in the, this camp is very sad.
4: The time is going slowly, very slowly. The heat must be
0: unbearable. Heat? Yes, boiling. Starting from June, July, and August. Three months, you cannot live. You cannot live here. Three months. It's impossible to live. And yet you do. I have to be patient. I have to be patient.
3: This mother, Amina Saleh, told us her family left after Saudi-led airstrikes killed more than 70 people in her town. The planes would fly above us and fire rockets and missiles like this, she told us. At night, there was no sleep. We were holding the young ones. She said that her older son was saying, we're going to die. She told us we saw people die right in front of us. A little while ago, we heard a rumble from the direction of Yemen. That's the bombing, isn't it? Yes, her husband said, it's near. What do you think when you hear that? Strong fear, she said. The terror is still inside us from the rockets, missiles, and planes. What lies ahead? for these people, given where we are today. Ayman Garaibe runs Yemeni Refugee Relief for the UN.
0: Remember, the conflict is going into a third year. Some people have been displaced for literally three years or going into their third year. And I honestly do not see any silver lining anywhere on the horizon that this is gonna end soon. Um, And I'm afraid the humanitarian situation will continue to deteriorate and we would go from Um, a displacement to a famine has happened to a cholera and God knows what's next. The
3: Saudi intervention in Yemen began with the rise of 32-year-old Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. He's the son of the king and he's the defense minister. Salman is quickly reforming the kingdom's fundamentalist society. Recently he lifted the ban on women drivers. This month He arrested 200 Saudis, including princes and media owners. He says it's a crackdown on corruption. His critics believe he's silencing his rivals. Salman's campaign in Yemen has now landed Saudi Arabia for the first time on the UN's blacklist of nations that disregard the safety of children in war. The Saudis have pledged $8 billion in humanitarian aid for Yemen but they've delivered very little of that. The head of the Saudi Humanitarian Agency says that its aid to Yemen is, quote, way beyond any damage caused by any attacks. You met with some
4: government officials involved in all of this. What kind of dialogue did you have with them? Well, we met with officials on all sides. They said all the right things and we come back, everything that they agreed to on visas and access so that we can get the equipment we need in, so we can deliver the food where we need to deliver it and the technology and the health product, you know, uh, terrible. The conditions are deteriorating at an unprecedented way and none of the commitments that were made by any and all sides have been fulfilled. What future do you see for Yemen? I don't see a light at the end of this tunnel. There's got to be a big change. As the World Food Program, I've got my mandate to feed people. But also, as a UN leader, I call upon the leaders of the world to bring the pressure to bear, whatever's necessary, to get the Saudi led coalition, the Houthis, and all involved to the table and end this thing. Uh, you keep going like you're going, there's not going to be anybody left. All the children are going to be dead. It's terrible.
3: 60 Minutes was turned away from Yemen, but our cameras got in. Our team tells how at 60MinutesOvertime.com, sponsored by Pfizer.
5: When you think of legendary voyages of discovery, you probably think of Columbus and Magellan, or Neil Armstrong walking on the moon. But what may be the greatest journey of exploration mankind has ever undertaken is happening right now. It began in 1977, when NASA launched two spacecraft named Voyager 1 and 2. The mission was only supposed to last four years. But now, 40 years later, against all odds, the two little spacecraft are still out there, traveling beyond the most distant planets in our solar system, reporting back on what they find. They're the outer space equivalents of the little engine that could. Nothing man made has ever traveled so long and so far, and wherever they go, they carry with them a message from Earth for any other life forms that may find them. Three, two, one. We have ignition and we have liftoff. When Voyager 1 and 2 took off in August and September of 1977, they had cameras and sensors and something no other spacecraft ever had two golden records filled with music. Johnny B. Good had no idea just how far he would go. Go, go. Go go, go. Go go, go. They've been going ever since giving us our first intimate views of the most distant planets in our solar system. Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, and their distinctive moons. What the Voyagers found surprised scientists and made us think about our place in the universe in a whole new way. It was only possible because of a rare alignment of the planets.
7: Once every 176 years, of Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune are lined up in such a manner you can swing by one on to the next, time after time, over a 12-year journey to get to Neptune. Normally it would take 30 years. So you lucked out? We lucked out. If this had happened a decade earlier, we would not have had the technology to do it. Ed
5: Stone is the chief project scientist for Voyager. He's 81 now. There is a sensor system down here, but was 36 when he first took the job at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in California, where the Voyagers were built. Each part was carefully designed and tested, but with the launch date fast approaching, project manager John Cassani and his team learned that the conditions near Jupiter might be much harsher than they expected. They needed extra protection for Voyager's cables, they needed a quick fix. Cassani says they used aluminum foil. doesn't sound exactly high tech. We would have normally used metalized Kapton or Mylar or some, you know, more appropriate mm. material, but we didn't have time. You just went to a store and got aluminum foil? Well, I didn't know. I said, ask my wife, where do you get aluminum foils? And that's, part of that is on Voyager? Yes, yeah. As seen in this NASA animation, the spacecraft, foil and all, reached Jupiter in 1979. took the sharpest pictures of the planet scientists had ever seen.
7: That's the great red spot.
5: Wow. It was known that Jupiter's great red spot was a massive storm larger than Earth. What wasn't known until the Voyagers arrived is that there are dozens of smaller hurricane-like storms feeding into it. Jupiter's moon Io held surprises as well. It didn't have the cratered look of our moon and a 25-year-old NASA engineer saw something on Io no one else had.
7: If you look off to the left of the picture you'll see an erupting volcano, hundreds of miles high. That's the kind of eruptions that that. The, the
5: white and the blue light that's yes. an erupting volcano.
7: That's the first active volcanoes other than here on Earth. How big a deal was that discovery? Well, it was a major deal because it really told us that the solar system was much more uh, dynamic than we had imagined. Each moon had a geologic history. They weren't just old objects heavily cratered. They had a geologic life.
5: Next to Io, the moon Europa.
7: Similar in size, but that's about all.
5: That looks like nothing else.
7: Yeah, us. exactly. If suddenly we realized that uh, what I call our terracentric view of the solar system was just much too constrained. I mean, nature was much more diverse than we could have imagined. Saturn's famous rings
5: also turned out to be more complex than imagined when the Voyagers got close to them in 1980 and 81. The rings are mostly made of water ice. Ed Stone calls them snowballs, but some of them are the size of mountains. The Voyagers also discovered small moons inside Saturn's rings. That Voyager could send back images like these is especially remarkable when you consider its equipment, and the computers running it, are 40 years old. The technology is really nothing compared to what we have today.
7: Your smartphone has 240,000 times more memory than the Voyager spacecraft. And it has a computer which is 100,000 times faster than the Voyager computers. This is the power source. Ed Stone showed us this full-size
5: model of Voyager. Both spacecraft run on plutonium, a long-lasting nuclear source of heat, which is converted into electricity. They carry 10 scientific instruments, two of which are cameras. The Voyagers transmit a constant stream of data, which gets picked up by giant antennas NASA operates in different parts of the world. To see one of them, we drove deep into the Mojave Desert near Barstow, California, to an antenna site known as the Goldstone Complex. There are a lot of scorpions and rattlesnakes out here, but little to interfere with the faint messages still being sent by the Voyagers. Voyager 1 is now 13 billion miles away from Earth. Its radio signals, which travel at the speed of light, take 19 hours to reach these enormous antennas at NASA's Goldstone complex. It's remarkable, especially when you consider that the transmitter on Voyager, which sends the signals, uses less power and the light bulb in your refrigerator. It's hard to imagine just how far 13 billion miles really is. The moon is about 239,000 miles from Earth. Mars is about 140 million miles away. You'd have to go more than 90 times farther than that to reach Voyager 1. The musical messages the Voyagers carry, those golden records, were mounted in a position no alien could miss. They come with a needle and instructions how to play them. A phonographer. The records were the work of a team led by astronomer and author Carl Sagan, host of the television series Cosmos. Sagan wanted to document the sights and sounds of planet Earth. More than a hundred photographs are encoded on the discs. Along with greetings in 55 languages. This one from Carl Sagan's son.
8: Hello from the children of planet
5: Earth. Also traveling out there in space, music.
2: From Mozart
5: (laughs) to Louis Armstrong. The records in space are made of gold-plated copper, but this vinyl version for Earthlings was just released this year. It's the ultimate mixtape.
8: That's what I called it, Earth's greatest hits.
5: Andrianne was creative director of the team Carl Sagan put together to collect the sounds of our planet for the two-hour record. It's heavy.
0: It's
3: heavy. It's the arc of human culture.
5: The Drianne was 27 years old at the time and had never worked on a record before. She was the one who insisted that Chuck Berry would get a ride into outer space. Oh, oh. Oh, Johnny, go. Oh. It's so great. <laughs> Why Johnny Be Good?
1: To me, Johnny Be Good, rock and roll, was the music of motion, of movie. Getting to some place you've never been before, and the odds are against you, but you want to go. That was Voyager.
5: Do you imagine the extraterrestrials who discover this tapping their feet Did you want to Johnny B. Good?
1: That was the joke on Saturday Night Live when Voyager was launched. You know, they broke in and said, um, "This just in from
3: the
6: extraterrestrials." Send more Chuck Berry. <laughs>
5: The Voyagers haven't found any extraterrestrials so far, but they have contributed to the search for life in space. Their observations of Jupiter's moon Europa suggested there might be an ocean beneath its icy surface, which was later confirmed by another spacecraft, Galileo. Voyager 2 also sensed that something unusual was happening on Saturn's moon Enceladus. Many years later, the Cassini spacecraft discovered geysers of water shooting above its surface. So on Europa and Enceladus, you found water, which means potentially there's life. Yes. What kind of life are you talking about? Microbial life,
7: very much like the Earth had for billions of years. After Saturn,
5: Voyager 1 headed away from the planets toward the edge of our solar system. Voyager 2 became the first spacecraft ever to visit Uranus in 1986, and Neptune— the most distant planet in our solar system in 1989. This is all astronomers could see of Neptune from telescopes at the time. And this is how Voyager 2 saw it, blue and turbulent, with winds gusting up to 1,000 miles per hour. (laughs) To celebrate reaching Neptune, the Jet Propulsion Lab had a party. Carl Sagan and Andrianne invited a surprise guest invited Chuck Berry.
7: Absolutely. And he came down the steps, main building at JPL. No one knew he was coming.
5: You dance?
3: I dance
1: with Carl.
5: Yeah. You may have guessed it by now, but Andreanne and Carl Sagan fell in love while making the golden record. They got married in 1981. Nine years later, at Carl Sagan's urging, Voyager 1 turned its cameras towards home and took a series of photographs of the planets in our solar system. You may remember this iconic photo of Earth taken from Apollo 17 when it was 18,000 miles from home. This is what Earth looked like from Voyager 1 when it was 3.7 billion miles away.
7: Then that streak of light that Wait, you Wait, that see, little dot in the center? That's Earth. It's nothing. It gives you a sense of how minuscule our world is, and even in our solar system, much less our galaxy, much less the universe. That's
5: home. That's us, Carl Sagan once wrote, a moat of dust suspended in a sunbeam. Voyager 1 is now three times farther from Earth than when this photograph was taken. Scientists believe Voyager 1 is now traveling in what's called interstellar space the space between the stars of our galaxy. Voyager 2 is expected to get there in a few years. So the Sun is our nearest star? Yes, correct. And then from the Sun, what is the next nearest star?
7: Alpha Centauri, which is about four light years away.
5: So Voyager is now in between the Sun and that next star?
7: Yes, that's right. Traveling how fast? It's traveling about 38,000 miles per hour. It travels about a billion miles every three years. (laughs) That's incredible.
5: (laughs) In about 10 years, when the Voyagers' nuclear power runs out, Stone says they'll continue zipping through the vacuum-like conditions in interstellar space. It's very empty out there, and they're unlikely to crash into anything. Long after all of us are gone, Voyager 1 and 2 will just keep
7: going and going. Think of that, we have actually sent a message which will be in orbit in the Milky Way galaxy essentially forever, even after the sun and the earth no longer exist in their current state.
5: Wait, this is, my little
7: mind can't process Uh some of this. Even after the sun and the earth? The sun will become a red giant and envelop the earth and that will happen maybe in five billion years from now. These two little emissaries will be out there in their independent orbit basically for billions of years. It kind of boggles the mind. That's the reason it was important to send it.
3: Now, John Wertheim, executive editor of Sports Illustrated, on assignment for 60 Minutes.
6: Last November 28th, the professional soccer team from Chapico, Brazil, boarded a flight for the biggest match in the club's history. With a little luck and a lot of pluck, this team of no-names and underdogs had made an unlikely climb to the pinnacle of soccer-mad South America. Then, just a few miles from landing in Medellin, Colombia, their chartered plane crashed into a mountainside after running out of fuel. 71 of the 77 on board were killed, including 19 of the team's 22 players. The crash itself, the plane violently split in half, that was just the physical wreckage. After the most horrific sports tragedy in years, the concept of a rebuilding season has taken on a whole new dimension. In sports, we often talk of game plans, but there are no proven tactics for coming back from catastrophe like this. A recent Sunday in Chapico, Brazil. It's the day of the Lord. It's also the day the Lord shares with the true national religion, soccer. Carved out of the forest in the country's hard-working southern region, closer to Argentina than the beaches of Rio, Chapeco was a city of immigrants. Most came from Europe in the last hundred years. They all worship one team, Chapecoense. Chape, for short, represents the smallest city competing in Brazil's top soccer league. It wasn't that long ago that both geographically and in the sports universe, Chapico resided in the middle of nowhere.
0: I never heard of them until 2013.
6: You'd never heard of this team until four years ago? Never heard of them because they were a very small club
0: from a small town.
6: Mateus Soroli comes from a proud Brazilian family of soccer players and coaches. His father, Caio Junior, became the head coach of Chapo in 2016. By then, the team had already made history ascending from deep in the minor leagues to the big time in a span of just five years. How were they having this run? What, what made them so good? They had a special group of, of people, man.
2: It came from the top down. And then that year, specifically last year, they had a great squad. Uh, not a lot of very famous people, but uh, the
7: team played as a team.
6: With great pride, Chape fans will tell you their club has no paylays. Instead, the team took on the characteristics of the community. In unpretentious, unfussy Chapeco, the club was a study in populism and discipline. Short on flair, long on odds, never outworked, they were that team opponents hated to face. Last season, the little club punching above its weight delivered a knockout blow when goalkeeper Danilo made this critical save. It secured Chapecoense's spot in the championship of the Copa Sudamericana one of the continent's most prestigious competitions. After the game, the players, the staff, and their families celebrated in the locker room. As one, they belted out in Portuguese a simple song. Vamos shopping. Let's go shopping. In five days later, they went on a flight operated by a cut-rate charter company called La Mia. How big a moment was this? A local news crew captured the players before takeoff, gleeful. <laughs> happy about where they were going and how they got there. You've talked a lot about the culture of the club and the administration, the people who put this culture in place. Where, where are they? They were all in the plane. Then their chartered plane crashed into a mountainside. 71 dead, including Mateus's father, the head coach. But miraculously, inexplicably, three players, Jackson Fulman, Elio Neto, and Alan Ruchel, lived to tell the tale, which they each do with remarkable candor down to the most chilling detail. When did you first sense something was, was very wrong?
0: I felt it when the plane shut down. When the emergency lights came on, I said, Jesus, have mercy. I heard the noise of the wind. I remember the alarm going off. And a voice came on in English to signal an emergency.
6: What did you hear when you thought this plane might be going
2: down? Only the wind. There was
0: no sound at all. Only the wind. I remember many people on the plane were praying, Many people saying, Jesus, help. My God, Jesus, have mercy. I was praying loudly. Found in the wreckage
6: hours later, Neto would lie in a coma for nine days. Rochelle sustained a spinal cord injury. Fulman lost his right leg below the knee. The tragedy grew even more devastating when investigators discovered the cause. The reason these guys heard nothing but the wind on the way down? The engines had stopped operating. The plane had run out of fuel. Sometimes I ask myself, why did all of this happen to us? Why were so many lives lost? So many fathers were lost. Most had three- or four-year-old children, innocent children who don't understand. This hurts a lot. No one fully understands how the accident could have occurred. We do know the pilot took off without enough fuel. And he has received the bulk of the blame from various investigations. Brazilian prosecutors determined the club was not negligent in hiring Lamia, an airline with only a few planes fit to fly, and an insurance policy that families were told was invalid.
1: I often say that the plane did not only crash in Medellin, but it crashed on my life.
6: Barbara Montero was married to the forward Ananias. We spoke to her and the wives of three other players who died. Five days after the crash, she was on Chapaquense's home field, not for a match, but for a funeral.
0: It was the most shocking moment of my life.
1: It was devastating.
6: Leticia Gabriel's husband was star goalkeeper Danilo.
7: I remember seeing those trucks and that very strong rain. It seemed like God was looking at the tragedy and crying. As the coffins arrived at the stadium, it started to rain even harder. It was like a movie, where the soldiers went to war and returned in those coffins. I hope to never see something like that again in my life. It was an unexplainable feeling.
6: The widows each received a life insurance payout worth about three years' salary from the club and the Brazilian Soccer Federation. But they've also filed lawsuits against Chapaquense, and more cases are possible against the airline Lamia and their insurers.
7: We had so many plans, to have more children, to build a house, so many dreams. And all of this ended overnight. I went back to the city where my parents lived, with my son, and without
1: Danilo. Imagine a life of pain, without love, without dreams and plans, without the provider of the house, without father and husband, empty.
6: Not long after the crash, the club made a firm, if controversial, decision. For the good of the community, as well as for financial reasons, Chapacuense had to continue competing. New players and coaches were hired. The spirit of Vamos Chape would be embodied, effective immediately. Chape Chape is a fighting team, and always has been. Known to all as Menino, Chapacuense's new president, has been heavily involved in the team since it was founded in the 1970s. He had the good fortune not to board the flight for Colombia. Did you have any instinct to let's take a year off and and just regroup and and take a break? Was was that something that crossed your mind? No, no, jamais,
1: No, we never considered that.
6: Never. We had to rebuild to restart. If we hadn't, I'm certain that the city would have been despondent. For the widows, it's been difficult to watch. The husband of Giolini Dominguez was the team's all-time leading scorer. She told us about the day all the wives were invited back to the stadium. Their late husbands were honored, and then their replacements took to the field.
0: I remember the day of that game. I saw my husband's shirt, number nine, that he played with. AND WHEN I SAW IT WAS NOT MY HUSBAND, IT GAVE ME SUCH A STRONG PAIN IN MY CHEST. The
6: widows say the team has not done enough to help them. The club president, Menino, says Chapacuense has done everything they can. He's managing an old soccer dilemma, how much to push forward, how much to protect what lies behind. We cannot always satisfy everyone. There are some things in life that only the passing of
4: time will allow people to understand.
6: Time on spools, life persists for the town, the team, and its players. While we were in Chapico, Jackson Fulmon got married. His two best men were Neto, now rehabbing and working on a comeback, and Alan Rochelle, the only one of the three survivors who stepped back out onto the field for the team. His first game back in August was an exhibition in Spain held to raise funds for the families of Chapé. That day, he faced arguably the greatest player in the history of the sport. The Brazilian visitors lost to Lionel Messi in Barcelona 5-0. The match revealed a bittersweet irony to the Chapa story. Following the crash, the team has received worldwide opportunities and attention perhaps only death could provide. You're only one man, you're one athlete, but I suspect you feel like you're playing for a lot more than yourself.
7: Ah, Yes,
6: definitely. Whenever I go on the field, I always think a lot about all the guys. When you guys look back at everything this club's been through over the last year, what, what do you want the legacy to be? What do you want people to know?
0: You walk into Chapecoense today, what do you see of those who died? Nothing. There is nothing to remember them. It seems like no one died. People are enjoying our wonderful club, but we must give credit to the men who fought and gave their lives so that Chapacoense could be where it is today.
6: The president of the club told us there are plans for a museum that memorializes those who died. Grief, as they say, is custom made, a private journey. But after more than a week in Chapaco, this was apparent. In the face of tragedy, the invisible force that binds a team to their community can strengthen, even with a completely new lineup of players. Those players have struggled this year. When Sunday came, Chapaquense needed a win to help them stay up in Brazil's highest league. Chapa's fighting spirit was on display as they beat a more established club from Rio 2-0. The loudest sound of the night came not with the goals or the final whistle, but at the 71st minute of the match. It was then, as at every home game this year, that the crowd paused to remember the 71 members of their community who died last year. Serenading both the new players and the ones no longer here, they sang an old anthem that takes on so much symbolic weight. Vamos chape.
4: 50 Seasons of 60 Minutes.
5: This week we take a look back to the Sunday before Thanksgiving 2008. That's when Andy Rooney explained why his favorite holiday doesn't get enough respect.
8: Thanksgiving is our most American holiday and it's good because we don't have to do anything on Thanksgiving except maybe eat turkey and watch football. That's why I object to the way it's being squeezed out by Christmas. The trouble is there's no money in Thanksgiving for businesses. People trying to sell things want to skip right over it and get to Christmas. Christmas is far and away the most commercial holiday we have. Here it is four days before Thanksgiving, and the stores are already all about Christmas. The big department stores have their Christmas windows fixed up. They're good to look at, but they're too soon, that's all. It ought to be against the law to start Christmas before December. When you open a magazine, these holiday flyers fall out like confetti in advertising holiday is the new religiously correct name for christmas i like christmas presents christmas music christmas trees christmas cards i like the christmas spirit what i don't like is the way people whose only interest in christmas is money have moved in on a nice non-commercial holiday like thanksgiving i'm steve croft
7: we'll be back next week with another edition of 60 minutes happy thanksgiving